Tonight we're in Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. We usually cover a few more verses than this, but this is such a high-powered couple of verses, I didn't think I could get done with it in two or three hours if I went longer, so I knew, knew you didn't want to stay that long. So Philippians 1, 27 through 28, only conduct yourselves, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul's in jail, uh, in prison, in Rome, as he writes this, and so uh, whether I make it out and see you again or don't, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So uh, let me read again the first part of that, Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves, that means live your life in a way that is worthy of being a representative, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I uh, was at a pastor's gathering several years back, and there were about 20 pastors there, and it was a family thing, so we brought our uh, everybody, their wives came, and those, those who had kids brought the kids as well. Our kids were gone, so we didn't have any. But there was one younger pastor who had a couple of kids, and in the middle of the thing, one of the kids just absolutely went berserk. Uh, and he couldn't, whatever he or she tried, they couldn't get the, the, the kid to behave himself, to quit screaming. And, and it wasn't just screaming, he was just being uh, this bad. And he was incredibly embarrassed by the behavior of his son. And they ended up leaving because of it. Uh, the Bible in the book of Hebrews talks about putting Christ to open shame. Putting Christ to open shame. That means that we embarrass him, as it were, by our behavior because we say, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I read the Bible. And then we act in a certain way that embarrasses Jesus and especially embarrasses the gospel. And so Paul's saying, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you're a believer, then act like it. There's a lot of Christians probably would be well to keep it secret uh, because of the way they act and talk and treat people because they're not an, an advertisement for the gospel at all. And so Paul is writing this to this church. So in your notes, number one, we are given responsibility and opportunity and ability. Ability is given to us by God to share the gospel when we earn it from God by our conduct and behavior. So I often think about everybody in our church the same way I did about my kids when they were growing up. We had eight, so we had, you know, one up here and one down here, and they all acted their age. And we have an age, as it were, not so much physical, but spiritual. And there are some that uh, Paul would call infants in Christ, uh, and so they're babies in their walk with Jesus, and there's others that are grown up. And as you observe people as a pastor, I'm always wanting to say and to do things that will move people along to the next level of maturity in their walk with Christ. And, uh, and so I observe things that would indicate that a person is growing, 
uh, is mature or is an infant or is a baby and where they're at in that. And uh, because one of the factors is that if you don't conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, you won't be given by God any opportunities to do anything with your life that matters. Uh, just because we're a believer in Jesus doesn't mean we get to do something for God. I played basketball in high school, and I sat on the bench all of but about five minutes in my entire basketball career. Uh, because I went to a small college, I actually went out for basketball at the college. I thought maybe I would get a better coach who was smarter, who knew how good I was and would actually let me play. I played two years, freshman and sophomore year in college, and my total playing time was about five minutes. I went to the coach, and I told him, my, uh, I said, you know, I really want to play real bad, and, I, and if you don't let me play, I'm going to quit. He says, well, let me say two things. First thing is, uh, you're, you're, you've got a combination of things. You're too slow and you're too short. And so you're never going to play unless we're 30 points up or 30 points behind. And the second thing is you are the best practice player we have. Now, you know, at the time I thought he was sincere. I thought he was truthful. I thought he was really saying that I was. I think after the fact, I'm thinking, he probably just said that to keep me on the team. I don't know. But he said that I worked hard, and so all the rest of the team elevated the game because of how hard I worked in practice. So please don't quit. So I stayed on the team, and I was the best practice player on the team. But I hated every second of riding the bench. I mean, I kept thinking, come on, coach, come on, come on. I tried mental telepathy, you know, just to sort of, uh, but it didn't work. I thought maybe, what if I just jump up and go out and play? Well, that wouldn't work, I'm sure, either. And so we are in the game of life, as it were. We're on a team, the team uh, of Jesus as the coach, and we only get in the game when he puts us in. And so the admonition is conduct yourself, live your life in a way that's worthy, worthy of the gospel so that you get to do something. First uh, Thessalonians, uh, Paul puts it a little bit stronger here, clearer, verse, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, but just as we have been approved, approved, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So question are you on the approved list? Uh, you can kind of think, uh, if you are, God provides opportunities, open doors, and also gives you the words, the strength, the bravery, the courage, resources. He gives you everything that you need. Uh, and if that's not happening, not very many opportunities, you don't seem to know what to say, you don't have the courage to say it, maybe it's because you're not on the approved list. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So what does God require? What does it take? If you're thinking, okay, I'm not sure I'm on the approved list, what do I have to do? Uh, Read the Bible more, pray more, give more, go to church more. What exactly is the requirement for being on the approved list? And so that's a good question. We'll answer that. Number two, a major characteristic of those who are God's instruments of righteousness is that they diligently pursue unity in their church family. They diligently pursue unity in their church family. So it's not a mediocre, casual, lukewarm kind of pursuit. 
it doesn't mean that you just aren't a troublemaker. It means actually pursuing, working hard at, uh, at causing our church to be a unified church. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so you've heard me say this a bunch. Let me say it again. The world as a whole thinks that the key to success is finding better methods. If we can just find the method that works well, we'll look at this church over here that's growing rapidly, and we'll look and see how they do it, and we'll import that program to our church. God doesn't bless methods. He blesses unity. And if a church is unified, just about any method will work because God will bless and God will work and people will be uh, given opportunity and open doors and courage and everything that is necessary to be a witness that's infiltrating the community and attracting people to Jesus will be happening in the church. Methods don't produce that. There's a purpose for methods. That purpose is that people would be striving together with one purpose because they're following a method a church has. But the method in and of itself is not what makes things work. It's the unity of the body of Christ. God blesses unity. Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Ephesians, now Paul's in prison with this letter as well. Uh, He says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. I implore you. That means I beg you. Please, 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 please. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so that's the kind of church that God blesses. That's the kind of church that attracts people uh, to Jesus. When uh, I was in high school, I had a best friend his name was Marion, and we were good friends because we had this common bond of both having names that tended to be mistook for girls' names. And so we called our little support group guys who hated their mothers for the name they got. And uh, we uh, graduated from high school together, went to the same college. We actually were in the girls' dorm. That's where they put us. They gave us our room assignment. It was in the girls' dorm. Uh, we were good Christians, though, and we told them of their mistake a couple of weeks later. And that uh, he, uh, he went to, came to church with me in youth group, and we did things together. And his mother came one time. She was the English teacher at the school. Because Trout Lake was such a little school, she taught English for every grade 1 through 12, I think. But she was the teacher there. And she came one time, never came back again. And I asked him one time, we were working on a project, uh, I said, how come your mom doesn't come to church? And he said, well, his face got real red. He could tell he was kind of embarrassed by the answer he was going to give. She can't stand the smell. I said, what? He said, you know, the smell. Well, about 90% of everybody who came to our church was a dairy farmer. We'd get up in the morning, you know, do chores, feed the heifers, do all that stuff, and then go in and shower and change. But on the way out the driveway, Dad would say, Dee, it looks like the heifer gate might be uh, open. Go check it. And I wouldn't get much on me, just a little bit. But everybody who came to church had just a little bit on them. Now, we didn't notice it. It Smelled like money to us. But an outsider, uh, it was repulsive. 
So churches, most churches have what I call sort of a culture of disunity. A little fussing over here, a little fussing over here, some squabbling about this, some squabbling about that. And, you know, it's sort of like a family. Pretty soon you kind of get used to that fighting and squabbling and, and things about things. And, but an outsider, they, they may not know the difference between Revelation and Genesis. But one thing they intuitively know, that a church full of people who say they're believers ought to get along. And if they don't, it basically disqualifies the gospel from being true. Uh, it, it becomes repulsive to people. Number three, is that where I'm at? Three. Uh, unity of purpose and doctrine is essential for a church to be used and blessed by God. So there's what I call essential doctrine in the church. That means it's important because if you don't get it straight, you're going to end up not going to heaven. There's just some stuff that is really absolutely imperative that you get right. And then there's some things that, uh, you know, it's always right to know what's true, but there are a lot of differences when you get out on the outside the parameter. And so we could ask the question, uh, are you going to get raptured before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation? Now, they have a term for that. It's called pre, mid, post, trib, believers. And you could take almost any church and do a survey, and you'll find it's pretty much... So, if you believe you're going to go through the tribulation, you're going to go to heaven? Is that part of the gospel? Is that necessary to believe that accurately in order to get there? I don't think so. In fact, I've changed my mind about 17 times. I keep moving back and forth, back and forth, kind of depending on the last book I read. <laughs> I've landed on one now, but you could ask me after the thing. We could talk about a bunch of other, uh, what you call doctrine, teaching, that is quite a bit of difference in that whole area. Somebody walked up to me the other day, are you one of those guys that believe once saved, always saved? I said, uh, usually. <laughs> Depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, so they, they weren't, and I said, but that's, that's cool. I'm okay with that. You'll find out when we get to heaven I was right. But if that's, eh, I don't think it's going to make that much difference whether you get to heaven or not. Uh, so there's a number of things like that. But if you know I teach a particular view, that Mike teaches a particular view, and you make an issue out of it in our church, then you're creating a problem. Now, it doesn't mean you have to agree with me. It just means that you're not going to fuss about it. You're not going to campaign about it. You're not going to start little groups that are uh, making a big deal out of it. And so what I say to people sometimes that don't agree with me on things, hey, I'm cool with that. No problem. Just don't make a big deal out of it because if you don't, I won't. If you do, I will. Uh, because God blesses unity and we need to maintain that. And so when we, I think about what my job is as a pastor, what I do and how it changes with Mike uh, doing a bunch of the preaching now, one of the main things that I do from the, at the top is to be responsible for the unity in this church 
And so I, I tell you, you don't have to agree with me, but I don't want you fighting with me. Uh, it's not for my sake, it's for our church's sake, because God blesses, or he doesn't. And so unity is important, and that unity of doctrine is a key thing. Philippians 2, 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if, if, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. Uh, Paul says, just make me a happy person by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And so Paul says, I'm a happy camper if that's true of this church. 1 Corinthians 3 and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. He's writing to the church at Corinth. I couldn't talk to you like you're mature or grown up, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're, you're not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. How does he know that? For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? And so, um, I have two sons, and uh, Seth, uh, uh, second of the two, was on staff here for a number of years as the high school youth pastor. Now he lives in Idaho. He just recently got married. And uh, my son Sam is pastoring one of our daughter churches in Staten. And he's doing, he's doing well as a pastor. Uh, Seth preached here. He preached at one, a couple of our daughter churches in the area. He preached at youth group. And if I were to say to Seth, Seth, you don't preach near as well as Sam does. Would I say that? As a dad? No. I might think it, but I would never say it. Not in a hundred years. What would be my purpose of saying something like that um, and what would it do for him? Uh, I have six daughters, and they all sing. They inherited it from me. Not my singing ability. I just paid for the voice lessons. <laughs> uh, they sing really well. But if I would have said, wow, Sandy, you sing so much better than Sherry, would I say that? No. I might think it, but I would never say it in a million years. But do you know what people do all the time? They say to Mike, you preach so much better than Pastor D. I'm glad you're preaching. So why did they do that? I'm not sure. Other than Paul says here, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual but as infants. I mean, it's obvious because some of you say, I'm of Apollos, I like his preaching better. Oh, no, I like Paul, his way better. And... Uh, there's just certain things you can think. But if you speak them out of your mouth, you're going to create a problem. You're going to create division. And any, a person with any sense of unity understands that. So they're always working, always working to pursue unity in the body of Christ. Number four, a discipline of behavior that those who get along well with almost anybody that they've developed is that they're not argumentative. Now, raising eight kids, they're all born with certain tendencies. And so over the years, I've come to the conclusion that every human being is born with certain tendencies. We're all born lazy. We're all born selfish. Uh, and 
they all tend to be born thinking their, their opinion or agenda is right. Therefore, they debate and argue with their siblings and other people. And so we all tend to be argumentative by nature. Just by birth, we've inherited it from Adam. It's part of our sin nature. And it's part of our culture. That tends to be what we do in our culture. And it's getting to be increasingly more and more of a factor. Titus 2.9, I urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not argumentative. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant, that's uh, Paul's talking to Timothy, who's a pastor. Paul trained him, mentored him, left him at the church plant in Ephesus that Paul started. He left Timothy there, and he wrote two letters back to him about how to be a good pastor. He said, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. That means argumentative. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, gent with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, this is so important. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant, notice it is God, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So there's a person in this church that's creating a problem at odds, argumentative. And so Paul says, talk to him with gentleness because if you do it my way, then I will get involved and I will cause and work so that they come to their senses and they will escape from the snare of the devil who is ultimately behind creating all discord in the church. Um, so I could say, hey, jerk, quit that. Uh, I mean, it probably will solve the problem because they'd leave. But God says, be kind, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Because if you do, God will get involved and God will bring it about. Ephesians 4, 1, um, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I read this to you earlier, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Number five, bitterness is a poison that destroys unity. Freedom from bitterness requires that we forgive anybody of anything quickly. Now, I probably deal with this as a pastor in relationships, whether it's moms and kids and fathers and sons and husbands and wives, neighbors, uh, cousins, whatever it is, the, this whole bitterness thing is such a big, big deal. People say things, do things, and we feel hurt, offended, angry, and we become bitter. Uh, and if I say, you should forgive them of anything, even if they've done it 70 times 7, and forgive them quickly. Well, the response is, if I do that, they'll do it again. Um, that's only if you're operating in a world where God is dead. If God's dead, then take care of yourself, defend your own rights. But if he's not, he honors certain behavior, and one of the things he honors right at the top is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14, If you forgive others 
For their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now that's a big price to pay. That is a super steep price to pay for uh, being bitter at an individual. Your bitterness doesn't make them less inclined to do what they're doing again. Uh, It doesn't hurt anybody but the person that's bitter. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So to to the degree that you've been forgiven, we're expected to forgive, and if we don't, then God won't forgive us when we confess our sins to Him. Number six, the whole unity thing would be so much easier if people weren't so quick to be offended and have their feelings hurt. <clears throat> so who, who is it that when somebody says something unkind or slights them, uh, gets their feelings hurt? Five-year-olds. Paul said, when I was a child, I acted like a child. Now I'm an adult, and I act like an adult. An awful lot of adults have grown up physically, but they haven't grown up uh, emotionally, relationally, and they just get their feelings hurt all the time. Um, You know, you've heard the modern vernacular, just get over it. It's sort of self-talk. It's how we talk to ourselves about what other people say and do. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, is not provoked, and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Uh, That basically means that... uh, you forgive quickly. I mean, very quickly. You don't hang on to it, and you don't mull it over, and you don't meditate on how you can pay them back. Um, You just get rid of it because Jesus has forgiven you of everything. God expects that you'll do the same. Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Contentions are like the bars of a citadel. And so this uh, proneness to be offended by what people say and do is a major problem in maintaining unity in any kind of relationship. Number seven, those most blessed. God blesses. His blessings are great and awesome. His blessings are conditional. That means God says, I will bless you if you do this. I will bless you if you do this. I will bless you if you do this. And so God blesses and he also withholds or withdraws blessings. Uh, That's rewards that he gives us in this life to motivate us to right living. The most blessed and used by God are those who pursue peace. Who pursue peace with all people and work at reconciling with any person who has been offended by them, whether on purpose or unknowingly. So we all offend people. Most of the time, we didn't do it on purpose. It's just the way it is. Um, I've got a list of people that are not speaking to me, or at least not speaking very much, all of who have left the church over something I said or did or didn't do. 
And so I work at reconciling with them, at least so that we can have a conversation if we see each other in public. And, uh, and so I just have a time schedule uh, with them in the sense, okay, let's see, it's been three months since I touched base with them. I'll try again. Last time, let's see, last time I, I made a phone call. I think I'll try uh, a message on Facebook this time. Uh, and then uh, next time I'll try an email. Maybe I'll send them a Christmas card. But I keep making the effort to reconcile. There was an individual whom I reconciled with this last year whom has been mad at me for 40 years. He was one of the first, when we started up in the church, uh, in the grade school 43 years ago, he was one of those original uh, people. And it only took me about two months uh, to upset him. And uh, he got really, really upset. So upset that I heard about it from a multitude of people whom he talked to. He moved away, and I still heard about it. Um, at first I thought, well, that's his problem. And then I came to the conclusion that if I want God to bless me, I need to pursue peace. And I'll do all I can. It might not guarantee anything will happen, but I'll keep working at it. And so this last year, after 40 years, uh, I said, hey, you want to go fishing with me sometime? I didn't say it. I sent a, uh, a, a handwritten note on his birthday. And he responded back. First time he'd answered anything that I'd corresponded to him in the whole time. And he said, sure. And my response was, thank you, Jesus. Took 40 years. But pursuing peace with people that you know are upset at you, whether you did it on purpose or not, is pleasing to God. And he blesses. Matthew 5, 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. And then Psalms 34, Who is the man who desires a good life? I certainly do. What's a good life? Catch a limit of fish every time I go fishing. Who, who desires a good life? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking slander. Depart from evil, do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. Um, so, you want God's blessing? Seek peace and pursue it. Romans twelve fourteen. This is the longest list of commands in the New Testament. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never, 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 ever take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of my favorite stories, I've told this to you before probably, was when I was in the 
seventh grade, eighth grade, there, about, there was a kid that must have flunked about four times. I don't know if he flunked, but he was bigger, twice as big as any kid in the class, and he was a real bully. His name was Fred. And that was before the days of hot lunches, and so everybody brought a lunch, and uh, I brought a lunch, and my lunches were homemade bread and roast beef sandwiches and uh, really good uh, cookies, and my lunch were better than most people's dinner. And so Fred stole my lunch. And I went home and told my mother that Fred stole my lunch. And she said, we'll fix him. I said, cool. So the next day when I went to school, she gave me my lunch, and she gave me another lunch in a paper bag with Fred's name written on it. I looked in the bag, and he had more in his bag than I did in my lunchbox. I said, Mom, what are you doing? Don't you know what the Bible says? He said, what? It says, feed your enemies. So I took that lunch bag to school and gave it to Fred, and uh, nobody picked on me after that. I didn't have to worry about school bullies because Fred took care of them. He is my personal bodyguard. Um, I was just, like I say, 6th, 7th, 8th grader somewhere in there, but I never forgot that lesson. Feed your enemies. It's counterintuitive. It's not the kind of way we do things. Uh, somebody steals our lunch, we're going to pay them back. But uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. So doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That means you'll make him feel bad. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Number eight, one of the worst sins to commit against unity in the body would be gossip and slander of any kind. It's a national pastime. Conversations at workplaces, conversations in gyms, conversations before and after school is about other people. And usually our conversations aren't, wow, they're a super person, they're great, they're so nice. It's usually conversations about others that uh, tear them down. Uh, you want to talk about sins and rank them in the sense of God's displeasure. This is right close to the top. Second Corinthians 12:20, "I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may fa- find you not to be what I wish, but maybe may be found by you to be, uh, to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife. Jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Um, So Paul was saying that's just really not anything that God blesses. Number nine, the most powerful discipline of pursuing unity proactively is to pray for others in the body of Christ. So the early days of our church, those of you who've been around, I don't know if anybody has been, uh, back since we began 43 years ago, uh, the first 10 years, first five years, were, uh, first four years were good. 1976, I started till 1980. 1980, we had a whole gang of people leave after having all kinds of secret meetings and letters and stuff as an attempt to try to get me gone. And, uh, and so I went and got some counsel from another pastor on how to manage that and deal with that. And then I started working uh, hard, went to some church go seminars. We worked ourselves back up to where we were. And then we had another, a second group of people leave. And, uh, 
And so I went to some more seminars and worked even harder. <clears throat> and we grew back up to where we were. And then we had a third group of people leave in a big gang. And uh, that was in 1987. So 80, 1980 to 87, we had three exoduses, all of which was a lot of gossip, slander, criticism of me. And it was fairly well-deserved. I was... Uh, dumber than a fence post when it came to being a pastor back in those days. So I said and did a lot of things that upset, offended people. And, um, and then in 1989, I made a goal, and that was to pray for every person in the church by name every week. There's probably only been about five weeks since that day in 1989, February of 89, that I've not done that. And uh, that's made a huge difference. It made a huge difference in me and how I reacted uh, to people. And I think it made a huge difference in people in that God worked in their heart and their life. One of the prayers I prayed repeatedly is, Lord, would you cause us uh, to abound in love for each other? Would you cause us, that was word for word out of the First Thessalonians, would you cause us to abound in love for each other? I prayed that prayer over and over and over and over again. And it was amazing how rapidly unity began to replace disunity in our church. <clears throat> Number 10, another proactive action is to look for opportunities to meet needs and help others in our church family. We had a family uh, have a, a house fire and basically destroyed their home and we've had all kinds of people uh, helping clean it up and to give money for um, replacing that. And it's been just great to see that happening because that's a very proactive way to have unity in a church family is where people see others in the church with needs and work at meeting those needs. 1 Timothy 6.18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Galatians 6.10, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith or those in your church. Number 11, Jefferson Baptist Church is the body and bride of Christ. He loves his bride very much, and those who help make his bride more beautiful, he blesses, and those who damage his bride, he disciplines. Now, I'd say that this is a really big deal with God. In fact, I had a pastor, I went to a seminar years ago, who said the most blessable activity there is in the eyes of God is to make his bride beautiful. The activity that will bring more curses into your life from God is to damage his bride, the church. And so we choose which it will be, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. That's verse 18 of chapter 11. And then verse 30 of chapter 11, after talking about this, he says this, For this reason, many among you are weak, and sick, and a number of you sleep. That means you're dead. So why are they sick and weak and dead? Because God killed them. Does God do that? Ever read the book of Acts? Ananias and Sapphira fell over dead in a church meeting right in front of everybody. Why are they weak and sick and dead? 
Well, because they cause disunity in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know? When Paul starts with that, that means this is a big deal. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? He's not talking about this body. He's talking about the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, you can see the whole chapter is talking about the church, the body of Christ. Don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy. That is what you are. So 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about the physical body. 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about the church body. And again, read the chapter. You'll see that's the context of the whole chapter. That's a pretty strong statement. If any man destroys the temple of God, the church creates disunity in the church. God will destroy him. A lot of people running around in churches today that go to the doctor and say, man, I don't know what the problem is. I need vitamins or something. I just don't have any energy. Or they're sick and they can't figure out why. God judges and disciplines and his church, the bride, Jesus loves the church. He gave his life for the church. It's the eternal companion of Jesus. And we do something that causes the church to become beautiful and to grow, to be healthy, to be unified. We become a major candidate of God's blessing. We do something that damages his bride, creates disunity. We become one whom God judges and disciplines and often, often in a very severe way to the point of losing our life. And so it's important that we pursue unity. Now back to the very beginning, we become qualified to be uh, those who share the gospel. Now when you are on God's good list, approved list, it's amazing how easy that is in the sense of open doors and opportunities and, and uh, how you just seem to know the right words and how the boldness is there. But if you're not on the approved list, then that whole witnessing thing just doesn't seem to happen. And so pursue unity. Be at peace with all men so far as it depends on you. Don't be argumentative. Don't take up an offense. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Uh, they're easy to understand but the problem is, is almost everybody does it, the negative stuff. So we get caught up in that. So live right the way uh, God instructs the, what pleases him. And uh, he said, if you want to have a, <clears throat> excuse me, a good life and be blessed by God, make his church beautiful and you become a, a major blessed person by God and you're given so many opportunities to be his servant to be his ambassador let's pray together father thank you for your word I do pray that you will uh, guide and direct each of us will you'd prompt us to think about our own behavior our own conversations with people we'd ask ourselves the question am I one who pursues peace diligently who diligently works at building unity and oneness in this church Lord, if we do, you will bless us and use us. And so I pray that each of us would think about that, would ponder it in our own life and make commitments and decisions and move in that direction. I know that as the, we grow in unity as a church, you will bless us, use us more and more, and more people will come to know you, more people will become fully devoted followers of you as you bless and work in our midst. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.